Welcome to Business and Human Rights with Rochelle. I've worked in the intersection of business and human rights for nearly three decades, and I'm using this podcast to bring you relevant weekly news and in-depth discussion of critical issues. My focus has been the global supply chain across sectors like agriculture, manufacturing, and extractives. I've done field work in over 100 countries and hope to bring my insight and experience as a practitioner to this podcast. Thanks for joining me. It's March 20th, 2023. Today we're speaking with Leslie Esparza, Senior Director of Responsible Sourcing at Microsoft. But first, here's a highlight of recent news. In 2023, women continue to earn 83 cents for every dollar that men earn. The U.S. Census Bureau and the Department of Labor's Women's Bureau tried to determine the reasons for the ongoing gender wage gap. They found 70% of it is immeasurable and is likely due to discrimination. But even within the 30% of measurable impacts, researchers reported being surprised. They found, for example, that education doesn't level the playing field. While women have been out-educating men since the 1980s, women need a higher degree to match the wage level of a less educated male counterpart. A woman with a high school diploma will earn as much as a man who never graduated high school. A woman with a PhD will earn as much as a man with a master's. Sarah Jane Glynn, Senior Advisor at the Department of Labor's Women's Bureau, says women are shut out of some of the highest paying jobs, which tend to be strongly coded as jobs for men. And feminized labor, the care economy labor, is undervalued and underpaid. Salary history is another factor. The reliance on past salary locks in that inequity by linking to a former discrimination event and keeps the pay gap widening between men and women. For more on this topic, check out my podcast from last week that focused on gender disaggregated data in the supply chain. The U.S. Labor Department's top attorney said U.S. states rolling back child protections are irresponsible. Her statement came after Arkansas Governor Sarah Sanders removed age verification requirements for workers younger than 16. Missouri is looking to do the same, and Iowa is considering allowing 14- and 15-year-olds to work in meat packing plants and protect employers from civil liability if a child is sickened, injured, or killed on the job. Labor solicitor Seema Nanda said, no child should be working in dangerous workplaces in this country, full stop. She further pointed out that the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act and its child labor protections apply in all states, and no state has the ability to limit these provisions. She said the Labor Department will continue to enforce child labor protections across the nation. Coincidentally, for more on that topic, you can check out my first podcast that had a deep dive focus on child labor in the United States. Journalists in Brazil found that tens of thousands of cattle raised on farms damaging tropical forests were processed at slaughterhouses connected to international collagen supply chains. Some of this collagen can be traced back to Nestle-owned Vital Proteins, a major producer of collagen supplements championed by the actor Jennifer Aniston. Vital Proteins is sold globally, including online on Amazon, in Walmart stores in the U.S., in Holland and Barrett and Boots in the U.K., and in Costco in both countries. The investigation, the first to connect bovine collagen with tropical forest loss and violence against indigenous peoples, found at least 2,600 square kilometers of deforestation linked to the supply chains of two Brazil-based collagen operations. 
According to the investigative report, unlike beef, soy, palm oil, and other major food commodities, collagen is not covered by forthcoming due diligence legislation in the EU and UK designed to tackle deforestation. Collagen companies therefore have no obligation to track their environmental impacts. According to a federal prosecutor in Brazil who monitors beef processors' climate commitments, most livestock-driven deforestation can be attributed to companies' indirect suppliers. Cattle are often moved from farm to farm for different stages of rearing, so a cow born on deforested land may be fattened for slaughter at a clean finishing ranch. With sales of beef, leather, and collagen booming, more and more forest has been felled and replaced by pastures in recent years, with land often seized illegally. Land grabbing and attacks on traditional communities spiked under Bolsonaro. In 2021, there were 305 invasions of indigenous lands, three times more than reported in 2018. Two contract cleaning workers in India died while cleaning an effluent treatment plant tank in a food processing plant in Uttar Pradesh. They did not have any safety gear when they entered the confined space at Rustam Foods factory. The owner has run away. In the last five years, over 350 sanitation workers in 20 states across India have died while cleaning sewers and septic tanks. The private contractors employing them are failing to provide the required personal protective equipment. A group of international NGOs have submitted a statement to the EU requesting that the arms sector be fully covered by the EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. The NGOs point out that the industry is known for extreme harm, and yet there are no known arms companies that conduct proper human rights due diligence with respect to arms production, transfers, and services. They would like the directive to include in the chain of activities the distribution, transport, storage, and disposal of dual-use items and weaponry, as well as the export of weapons, munitions, or war materials after an export license has been granted, and the use of all such products. Exemptions have been made for the arms sector in the directive under the premise that it is covered by national arms export controls. NGOs point out that export controls are not a replacement for human rights due diligence that requires companies to operate with their own individual responsibility to respect human rights and to prevent and remediate adverse impacts. International trade union Industrial has released a framework for responsible exit from Myanmar and has stated it will begin a boycott of companies who continue to source from that country. Myanmar has been rocked by violence and instability since 2021, when a military coup ousted democratically elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi and her government. Thousands have been killed nationwide since the coup began. The economy has collapsed with severe shortages of food, fuel, and other basic supplies. The Ethical Trading Initiative, a UK-based organization, has said it supports the industrial framework. The ETI stated, All brands that continue to source from Myanmar should do so in line with the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which requires transparency on their reasons for continued business in the country and on what extra measures they've taken to identify and mitigate human rights risks and ensure remediation when violations occur. In related news, Nestle has announced it will close its sole factory and head office in Yangon, stating they will do all they can to support everyone affected by this decision. They join oil giants Total Energies and Chevron and Norwegian Telecom's operator Telenor, who have all exited the country since the coup began. That's a wrap for the news. Now let's hear from Leslie Esparza.
I'm here with Leslie Esparza, currently Senior Director of Responsible Sourcing at Microsoft. Previously, a decade with Levi Strauss as Director of Social and Environmental Sustainability in the Americas, and who for years worked on the advisory side as well with Arch Advisors and CSCC, a social audit firm, which is where we first worked together 25 years ago. Thanks for joining me, Leslie. Thanks for having me. I think the beginning is actually a great starting point for us. So I want to go back two and a half decades. And what was it like for you starting out in this industry? I mean, I think we didn't even use terms like business and human rights together in a sentence. It was more corporate responsibility or risk. Can you take us back a bit to what that was like? Wow. Um, yeah. So 25 years ago, if I can remember that far back. Um, it was, I would say it was like the Wild West, right? Um, we were working in a brand new field. Like you said, it didn't even have a name. People would ask me what I do, and it was really hard to explain. Um, in those days, I feel like companies took a very top-down approach. So American and European companies had, you know, these newly established codes of conduct and suppliers were just expected to comply. So it was very straightforward. It was investigation and reporting. You know, as auditors, we'd been trained by ex-Department um, of Labor inspectors. But um, I think that auditing in the U.S. was really different than auditing internationally. So as auditors, we were sort of constantly figuring out how to identify issues like forced labor, child labor, and trying to understand issues that weren't talked about as much in the United States, like freedom of association. Um, and another thing I would say that is different is that companies still were not really focused on resolving the issues. It was really more about identification. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, that focus to resolving really took uh, years to kind of develop that. Let's let's do more than figure out that there's a problem. Looking looking back historically at that time, what do you think were the main drivers for companies to actually take action? Uh, I think originally the main drivers were a couple of things. And I and I, I should caveat this with it depends on the company always, mm -hmm. right? But I think uh, one of the main drivers was reputational risk. So companies were just managing their brand image, right? So with with big scandal came impacts to, to companies' reputations. Um, and then I think that there were sort of special, more select, a select few companies that uh, were learning about supply chains overseas and learning that, you know, a lot of things that happened in supplier factories didn't align with their company's values. And so they were addressing that concern through the work. That's a good point as to, yeah, what was really pushing them to address those issues. I think there was a certain tension between companies and the idea of their social responsibilities for the impacts on communities, workers, you know, society. Um, they were kind of growing into it, right? Like trying to figure yes. out where was that line uh, for what they were responsible for? Do you think there's yes. still some of that tension today? Or do you think, you know, because you are, you do exist on the brand side, um, do companies have greater acceptance for this role and their part? Yes, I do think that there is. I think if you 
are a major brand of any sort of consumer goods or food and beverage products or agricultural products, um, you know that you have to have some sort of ethical sourcing standards or program in place today. Uh, I do think that that's different from 25 years ago. I think um, previously it really was sort of the leadership type companies that that had these programs in place and less so in, in other companies. And today it, it's definitely different in the sense that uh, we're seeing all this legislation, upcoming legislation mandating human rights due diligence and other activities like reporting that for decades have only been voluntary. So how does that change the stakes for companies or does it change the issues they give attention and priority to? It does. I think it change, changes the stakes. I mean, the stakes are much higher for companies these days. Um, one of the challenges I would say that companies face is keeping up with the changes. There are so many mm -hmm. um, supply chain due diligence laws that are being implemented that are coming and keeping up with the laws and all of their different requirements is a challenge. It's a real challenge. Uh, another part of the challenge is that not only was it voluntary in the past, but the scope of the laws is going much broader and much deeper. So it's pushing us to go further up, upstream in our supply chains. The expectations are that we know where even our raw materials are sourced and the conditions under which they're sourced, which was not the case in the past. Oh, that's an excellent point about it. Yeah, historically, there was a lot of focus on tier one in the supply chain, which is like the immediate supplier that a company is buying from. And now there's just a lot more knowledge and awareness that the highest risks to human rights exist farther upstream, the farther away from that immediate contractual relationship, more at the raw material origin, that that's less visible. Um, it's it's where a lot of, of things like child labor or forced labor can exist, right? So, so the legislation is pushing us to those areas. Yes, exactly. It's not easy though, uh, <laughs> right? So like, like you've just highlighted, like today, there's a huge range of issues for companies to grapple with. And I know, uh, you know, in the work that I do with companies, uh, it, it can range from living wages, child labor, forced labor, conflict minerals, traceability related to almost all of those issues to try to figure out, you know, what is that upstream uh, supply chain like, and even climate impacts on communities from a human rights perspective. So it's a very long list. How does a company figure out where to start? That is, I think that's sort of a million, million dollar question because the expectation, um, at least according to some laws that have passed recently, is that we have full visibility into to all parts of our supply chain. But obviously with more complex supply chains, that's not immediately possible. So figuring out where the risk lies is part of the answer to that question. And I think the answer to where the risk lies also depends on the type of product that, that you're producing. If you're in agriculture, I think obviously the risk is at the farm level, right? Um, but then if you get into more complex supply chains that have hundreds of different components that go into one product, identifying where that, that risk is can be a challenge. Um, some of the identification is actually coming from government themselves different governments. So we know that governments are looking at, you mentioned conflict minerals, they're looking at conflict minerals, but they're also looking at other 
minerals that may be produced in specific geographic locations that they consider high risk or that they believe may be tainted with forced labor. So um, as companies look at their own supply chains, I think some of what they're taking is from government and some of it is just knowledge of their own supply chains. It's certainly a, kind of an uphill battle for companies to, to figure out navigating uh, this new environment and the responsibilities that are coming from the legislation. Given yes. your, your like depth of experience on the brand side and the advisory side, you know, what do you see as the main challenges for companies? As, you know, maybe they, they will have some guidance on issue identification, like you said, like some of it's coming from government. Um, so once they are like isolating the issues that they want to deal with, kind of what are the challenges for them? I think the challenges are um, sort of educating. One of the big challenges, I, I believe, is educating regulators. So uh, we have people in government that are establishing these laws without a real understanding of the intricacies, the nuance that exists within supply chains. And so, and without understanding how the implementation of the laws will affect companies' ability to comply, um, I think that's one of the, the big challenges. And it, I, I think it is up to industry and to industry groups to, to help educate uh, regulators, because without that, uh, companies will continue to to fail as they try to comply with some of these laws that are that are being put in place. Oh, that that is such a great example. You know, that reminds me um, when the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act uh, passed. I guess it was two thousand nine, and it took effect in in twenty ten. Um, I remember at the consulting firm I was with, we hosted a, a conference and brought in a lot of brands, and and we invited the drafters of the legislation in California to come and speak. And they sat in the back of the room uh, listening to the other speakers who were from companies kind of talking about their responsible sourcing programs. And then they got up to speak and they were just dumbfounded that the drafters of the law, they just said, we actually had no idea that there were companies that even had programming like this. Like we didn't know you guys did anything at all in your supply chain. And it was kind of funny because, so um, interesting. yeah, it, it was like accidental that, um, you know, the legislation was very general. It wasn't that prescriptive. And so it was successful uh, because it didn't constrain uh, companies too much on how to implement and it was workable. Um, but the workability was like kind of a coincidence or an accident because, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't even know what companies were already doing at the supply chain level. Yeah, I, and I think that that's true still today. I mean, I think I don't I don't know the complete answer to how we make those connections between, you know, those who are deciding the laws and those who are implementing the laws and then those who are having to to follow the laws. But I do think that that there needs to be greater understanding built there. That's a great point. Well, you know, pulling back to just the concept of, of business and human rights and, and just the things that companies have been trying to do over the years to drive a more positive impact. Um, is there any like case study that comes to mind of, of an effective way that a company has has worked to tackle some of these challenges? 
going back to to your first podcast topic on child labor, I do think a lot of really effective done, work was done in, in the child labor space. Um, after the issue was identified in formal supply, formal company supply chains, um, the, the, the next question was, so what do we do about this, right? And there was a lot of really good work done by industry groups, by brands, by um, NGOs, you name it. I think everybody, everybody wanted to have a, a part in solving that problem. And so I do think, not to rehash what you already said in your first podcast, but there were effective solutions that were brought forward and that have been put in place. And I and those models are still followed in lots of places. So to me, that is success. And that's a great example, too, because that that particular kind of topic was a success that could only be brought about by this kind of multi-stakeholder cooperation. It wasn't just like one company going out and making a difference, right? It was it was a broad range of actors, including civil society, that made that successful. So maybe that's, you know, good for us to think of that as a model. Agree. So um, is there a particular memory from your work that's really stayed with you over the years, something that impacted you, whether negative or positive, just a a story from your own experiences? Um, I have been thinking about this. Uh, I, it was hard for me to think of one particular memory, but I do remember the very first trip, auditing trip I took, you know, right out of college, my first job after college. Um, I went to Mexico the day I started my job. Um, and it was a two week auditing trip and it was so eye opening. And it was that trip that really, for me, cemented what I knew would be, you know, my career path. I knew that I, that I wanted to work in this field. Um, speaking with apparel workers and factories at that time, it was all apparel that we were auditing. Apparel workers in factories and small towns, hearing about their lives and hearing about their workplace experiences. It was, it just changed my perspective on the world. And, um, and I think I, to a certain extent, understood, you know, what type of impact this, this kind of work could have on people globally. That, that's great. Uh, that's a great story. And I have to say, I remember you leaving on that work trip. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you do. I, I do. Um, so all these years later, you know, what keeps you doing this work? Because um, I think, you know, we've learned a lot, right, about maybe our expectations of what social auditing could achieve, its limitations. Um, you've you've taken on a lot of different roles, like obviously on the brand side, which is, is completely different. Um, but but you've stayed, you know, in this sector. And I wonder what what is it that inspires you or, or keeps you hopeful or positive about having an impact when some of these issues feel quite challenging or intractable or, um, you know, there's just can be a certain amount of, of negativity around the limitations of, of what can be done. Right. I do think, you know, it's frustrating at times because you, you do expect to see impact, right? But a lot of these changes have not happened over overnight. Like the child labor issue that we 
we have talked about earlier, that was not from one day to the next. That was several years of people working on the issue to get to some sort of solution that people believed was the right solution. So I think, you know, if you if you want to work in this field, you have to definitely be patient. Um, I think the thing that keeps me wanting to do this work is the same thing that kept me wanting to do the work after my first auditing trip. I think that business has a place in bettering the world as a corporate citizen. And I do believe that businesses can do well and also do good at the same time. Um, it's a challenge, but it's one that I enjoy. Um, I also find that working in this field, I, I work with people who feel somewhat similar to me and, you know, like attracts like. So it's always fun and exciting to, to work with people who see the world in the same way. Oh, that's great. I love that. You just shared so much wisdom right there. Um, Leslie, what are we missing? You know, we talked about like a laundry list of some of the current hot topics and issues that companies are grappling with. What, what is the near and dear to your heart um, that like needs more thought, more thoughtfulness, more attention, um, issues that, that maybe aren't um, as trending or on the radar? From an issues perspective, I like that you addressed gender equality in supply chains last week. I feel like that is one that maybe some have started to address, but I feel like it's still gaining traction. Um, another issue that I know a lot of companies are struggling with right now is the issue of traceability. And I know that you've worked in on many traceability projects and and um, initiatives over time. So I, I know that you'll understand when I say that I think people look at it really as if it were something really simplistic and it's not. Um, I think that people underestimate the uh, amount of supplier outreach and management that goes into to that kind of work. And so I would say on the issue of traceability, there are lots and lots of companies that are creating platforms for all of the data that we're supposed to gather through traceability. And I think that there are not a lot of people that are working on that outreach part of the work that is actually going to get us to where we need to be with tracing our supply chains. That That's a great point. I think, you know, we know garbage in, garbage out. Like if the... If yes. the suppliers aren't prepared um, to understand the expectations around the documentation, I think we've been uh, aware of, you know, doing traceability in sensitive areas and finding a lot of fraudulent documentation. So then, yeah, like the what good is the data base that's holding all of it? Um, exactly. So that's a that's a great point. It can be very challenging. We'll have to go into that in another podcast. Um, but I love that you, yeah, you've brought up those issues. I um, also agree that they're they're critical. Um, finally, what's uh, what's your advice for people looking to enter this field um, or who are just starting out? You have a lot of experience here, so what would be your advice to people that are just stepping into the stage? I would say network, network, network. I think that um, the field although it has grown a lot in the last 25 years, I think it's still fairly small. Um, and to a certain extent, it does matter who you know. So 
you know, ask for informational interviews, attend conferences. Um, and then I would say, don't be afraid to take a job that may be only somewhat related uh, because you never know where it will lead you and, and, and what those experiences might bring. That is great advice. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time. It's always, you know, great to talk to you, but also just to hear your wisdom and all of your thoughts on these complex topics. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you, Rochelle. Great to talk to you too. That's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to go back and check out my earlier episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. You can also find more content on my Instagram and TikTok reels. Have a great week. Yeah.